2 Samuel 16 in your Bibles. We'll begin in verse 15. We're going to cover some ground this evening, getting through chapter 17. And if you think that's a lot, wait until next week. We're going to try to cover three full chapters of Scripture next Sunday evening. So we're just plugging right along here. The title of the message, The Sad Case of Ahithophel. We're going to consider a very sad case this evening. And through it, learn some important lessons. We considered already in this series the danger of resentment, harboring unforgiveness in your heart which boils over into bitterness. Today we get to see this interplay really uh, between two men whose failure to obey God result in devastating circumstances. While we've already considered the sin that provoked it, David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, and we've already considered the dangers through several sermons of harboring resentment primarily through the example of Absalom and Amnon and Tamar. This evening I would like for us to simply consider the whole sad affair and the far-reaching consequences into which our poor decisions can lead us as well as many others. And, and it, it's going to be somewhat dis- disheartening, uh, somewhat of a, a cautionary tale, but for, for really months now, we've had in the back of our minds... Bathsheba, Uriah, David's sin, Amnon, Tamar, uh, the, the resentment lessons from him, the sin with Bathsheba, and I mentioned during that time Ahithophel, and how as we consider the far-reaching consequences of David's sin, it touched people that David never even could have imagined, right? It didn't just, it wasn't a victimless sin. It wasn't just him and Bathsheba. Uriah died. Uh, the, the, the many men in Israel who died, um, the, the collateral damage of David's sin with Bathsheba was great. We're going to continue to see that collateral damage as we look at this evening. So, in chapter 16, verse 15, we read this. And Absalom and all the people... The men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Recall where we left off last time. David had fled from Absalom, who was attempting to overtake the kingdom, overthrow David's rule. David, rather than risking open war upon the city of Jerusalem, has strategically withdrawn from the city with his friends and a portion of his military. And now we find Absalom and all those whose hearts have been drawn away by him coming to Jerusalem to take the kingdom. And the text specifically mentions, as it did in chapter 15, verse 31, that Ahithophel was with them. We mentioned in that chapter at that time that that was the first mention of Ahithophel and that we'd come back to him. So Ahithophel is with uh, Absalom as he comes into Jerusalem. Now David had prayed a direct prayer in that passage that we talked about last week asking God to take the counsel of Ahithophel and turn it into foolishness. Furthermore, when we saw Hushai, the archite, come to David, being an old man, David says, you being with me is just going to slow me down. It's not going to be to our mutual advantage. So why don't you go back to Jerusalem and attempt to defeat Ahithophel's counsel before Absalom. And Hushai does indeed do that. He goes back and he's going to attempt to defeat Ahithophel's counsel. Pastor, why is all of this so important, you ask? Because Ahithophel, and David understood this, was a man of extreme wisdom. He, he said that 
um, that, that Ahithophel was a, a, a very wise man and he knew that if Absalom listened to Ahithophel's advice, it would be highly likely that David would lose the kingdom permanently and be killed in the process. He knew just how wise Ahithophel was. So we continue in verses 16 and 17, and the text tells us it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king. God save the king. And Absalom said unto Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? So Hushai comes to Absalom and he says, God save the king. He says it twice. He's showing obeisance to the king. He's calling Absalom the king. Not David, Absalom the king. And Absalom is semi-confused by this. Uh, It's notable because Hushai is called several times David's friend. Uh, There's a difference between simply being a counselor and being a friend. Hushai was David's friend. Everyone knew it, including Absalom. And Absalom is somewhat startled by the fact that Hushai did not go with David. But he's not. He, he is there in Jerusalem. He's calling Absalom the king. He does not know that Hushai and David had already made plans. Uh, perhaps he should have assumed it, but he didn't. He didn't know. He didn't realize this. And so uh, he's a little bit skeptical, but he's interested here. Verses 18 and 19, Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people, all the men of Israel, choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in thy father's presence, so will I be in thy presence. So Hushai makes a nice case here. He says, look, I'm not loyal to David. I'm loyal to the king. I'm loyal to the Lord. I'm loyal to the people. I'm loyal to the one that God put in power. Who should I serve? I should serve the king. And who is the king? Well, the king right now is David's son. I serve David faithfully. Why should I not serve his son faithfully? And he offers his service as friend and advisor. Absalom seems to accept this answer, and we move on. In chapter 16, verse 20, we read, Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. So Absalom is semi-content with Hushai's answer. He says, okay, Hushai is sitting there. And he says, he turns to Ahithophel now and he says, okay, Ahithophel, we're in Jerusalem. What should we do now? Verse 21. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, go in into thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hand of all that are with thee be strong. So Ahithophel's first advice is to defy the king by going in unto the king's wives. This is something that you just didn't do unless you were attempting to defy the king to override the king's authority. Basically, by taking a king's wife and laying with her, you were challenging the king's authority. And of course, at this point, Absalom has already done so. Um, The king's wives were considered his exclusively. To take their wives, even after their death, would be a sign that you are claiming authority for yourself. We saw this come up several times already in 2 Samuel during the days of Ishbosheth, if you recall Saul's son. In 2 Samuel 3, verse 7, Abner, who was the captain of Saul's hosts and who is the one who elevated Saul's son Ishbosheth after Saul's death to the throne, went in, presumably, unto one of Saul's concubines. And Ishbosheth saw this as a direct statement of desiring the kingdom for himself and he rebuked Abner and said why did you go in unto one of my father's wives 
he saw this as a threat to his, his leadership. And of course, Abner got very upset at that. And that was the point where Abner decided, I'm just going to turn the kingdom over to David. Forget this kid. I'm, uh, he wasn't all that young, actually, Ishbosheth. But he says, I'm just going to turn the kingdom over to David. When God rebuked David for taking Bathsheba, he also specifically mentioned that, that God had given David Saul's wives. He said, have I not given you the wives of Saul? That you had to go and take Bathsheba as your wife, even though she was not yours? And so David, uh, God had given David everything that was Saul's, including Saul's wives, as a statement of the transition of authority from Saul to David. So we've seen this idea of, of men going into the wives of another man in order to assert authority or power over him twice already in 2 Samuel. And here we see it again. Absalom goes into the ten concubines that David had left to keep the house. And this was an open affront to David. It would come with the expectation that David would abhor his son, that now his son has defied him. His son hasn't just taken the throne, his son has spit in David's face. And this would draw the heart of the people even more so toward Absalom through this political ploy of pity, which is still utilized today to manipulate the masses. We're seeing it election on Tuesday, we're seeing it quite a bit, aren't we? People trying to use pity to their advantage, uh, playing the race card, playing the gender card, playing this card, playing that card. People play cards all the time in order to get the the pity vote. Uh, um, And in this case, that's what Absalom is trying to do. So the scriptures tell us in verse 22, Absalom, they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, uh, he does this in front of all Israel as a, a, a blatant sign of disrespect toward David that all of Israel could see. It's important also to note, however, that by going in unto his father's wives in the sight of all Israel, he's also fulfilling a prophecy that God gave to David as a consequence of David's sin. We read that in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. Thus saith the Lord... Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. This is happening. On this day, Absalom takes David's ten concubines and lays with them before all Israel in the sight of the sun, and God goes on to say, You did your sin in private. I will rebuke you and judge you out in the open publicly for your sin. Verse 23 as we continue. So, so Absalom does this. He lies with David's ten concubines. Uh, verse 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So chapter 16 ends, and we'll transition into chapter 17. Chapter 16 ends with deeper insight into this man Ahithophel. And at this point, the discerning reader should be wondering why exactly the text cares so much about him at all. Why so much effort into learning about this man, Ahithophel? You know, when you read the Bible and someone is mentioned regularly, even if he seems as though he's not all that important of a person, you should take note of this. You should tuck it away and begin looking for a deeper purpose. Ahithophel, why is he mentioned at all? Why do we care who who Absalom's advisor is? Why do we care that he was once David's advisor? Why do we care at all about him? 
Why does the Bible care at all? Why does God go out of his way to mention him so much? And why speak so, so specifically that he's this man of incredible wisdom, all of these things? Well, everything has a purpose. Nothing in the scriptures is wasted. So when you see something like this come up, I encourage you to begin looking for that purpose. The text tells us that Ahithophel was at the top of his game in his counseling. He, he was, and the scriptures say, it was when you inquired of him, it was as if you were inquiring of an oracle of God. Someone who had the direct ear of God. Someone who was speaking for God. He was so accurate so precise and so wise, so right in everything that he said. The guy couldn't go wrong. Everything that he said, he considered all the options. He was such a wise man. It was as if you had access to the very mind of God when you spoke with him. That's what the Bible tells us. And not only in the days of, of, of Absalom, but in the days of David. David took advantage of this as well. So David knew his wisdom. Now this wisdom is being used against David for Absalom, and we'll find out why in the next chapter. Continuing in chapter 17, beginning of verse 1 through 4, we read this. Moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night, and I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid, and all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people unto thee, the man whom thou seekest is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders in Israel. So Ahithophel now gives him advice as to how he should proceed militarily. He knows that David is currently at his weakest. So he counsels that they take 12,000 men and they come upon his camp that night while he's weak, while he's tired. And as they do so, he says, everyone will flee and will kill only David. That means there won't be collateral damage. That means Israel won't get upset that Absalom is killing other Israelites because only David will be killed here. In doing so, the people, he says, they will return in peace. They, they will flee, David will die, they'll lose their leader, and they will immediately turn to you, and you will have the heart of all of Israel. Israel will be yours if you will let me do this. You will spare the lives of everybody but the king. But did you notice how Ahithophel describes this campaign in verse 1? Let me choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after him, and I will smite the king only. Since when do royal advisors go out to battle? Since when does a counselor, an aged counselor, insist that he be the one to assemble an army, that he be the one to lead that army, and that he be the one to kill the king? Is there something strange about that to you? That's kind of strange to me. There was something deeply personal about Ahithophel's desire here. He wants to kill David. This is a personal vendetta. So much so that we wonder if Absalom was actually being perhaps used a little bit by Ahithophel. If Ahithophel was the one that worked in Absalom this plan to begin with. Because Ahithophel wants vengeance. However, the plan was incredibly wise. It pleased Absalom. It pleased the elders of Israel. None of whom seemed to be very concerned about David's life. But Absalom, in an effort to be a good leader, doesn't just listen to Ahithophel. 
We read in verses 5 and 6, Then said Absalom, Call now Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear likewise what he saith. After all, Hushai was a good friend, right, of David. The text continues, And when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spake unto him, saying, Ahithophel hath spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. So he calls to Hushai. Maybe this was a test of his loyalty. Maybe it's simply because he knew Hushai knows David so well. They were such good friends. Let's see what he has to say. Get his insight. Is this good advice, Hushai, or would you do something different? And we read Hushai's advice in verses 7 to 13. Now remember, David had sent Hushai to undermine Ahithophel's counsel. So this is what we read. And Hushai said unto Absalom, verses 7 to 13, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and that they be chafed in their minds, as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war, and will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hid now in some pit or in some other place. And it will come to pass that well, when some of them be overthrown at the first, that whosoever heareth it will say, There is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of the lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found. And we will light upon him as the dew falleth on the ground. And of him and of all the men that are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city and we will draw it into the river until there be not one small stone found there. So Hushai's counsel is very much opposed to Ahithophel's. He suggests that, that, that um, Ahithophel doesn't... Uh, that's probably not how it is. David's probably not actually just sitting in camp uh, licking his wounds. He probably, being a, a, a smart man, uh, has separated himself from his band. So you'll go and you'll find David's encampment, but he won't be there. He'll be hiding in some pit with his, with his bodyguards where you won't find him, and you'll come upon them, and there will be a battle, and it will be noised abroad by David that in this battle, Absalom's men, um, uh, that there was a great slaughter, and Absalom's men would be disheartened by this for fear that David had some... A greater plan in mind because he's such a good warrior and they'll lose their morale and the battle will be lost. Hushai says, so instead, gather all of Israel. Don't just take a small war band of 12,000, but gather all of the army together and you go out and you lead them yourself into battle. You be at the front of that battle. You fight this battle yourself and on the open battlefield you can destroy David and all of his followers so that there's nobody, no dissent left. And then if they flee into a city, you've got enough people now that you can just take ropes, you can tie ropes around the walls of that city and you can drag the entire city into the river where not one stone left, is left upon another. You can destroy every dissent and then you can reign. You can perhaps see what Hushai is doing here. First, he's giving David more time to, to settle. Uh, second, having an army come against David would probably be a bit 
more defendable than just having a small band that attacks in the night. At least David can look his enemy in the eye. And David, no doubt, is one of the greatest warriors in the country, in, in, in all of Israel. His, his tactics will be far better served in a head-on battle with his enemy than dealing with a, a small war band in the night that comes upon him. Thirdly, uh, we would understand that Absalom was likely probably not as skilled in battle. Um, and so it would be, for him to lead the army, would probably put the army at a bit of a disadvantage simply by virtue of Absalom's relative inexperience. So Hushai did a good job of serving David here. Verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord hath appointed... And, and, and that, that was what they said. Now the rest of this is not what they said. This is, this is divine commentary. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. So the counsel of Ahushai was actually not, not good for Absalom. Hushai did a good job of presenting it, but it was good for David, not for Absalom. And yet God appointed this to be. He allowed them to think that Hushai's counsel was better because God was going to judge Absalom. So God's using Absalom to judge David, but make no mistake, Absalom is still doing wrong here. And God's going to judge him as well. And let this be a reminder to us. In this political season, election coming up Tuesday, God uses leaders to judge men, and He uses men to judge leaders. God uses leaders to judge men, and men to judge leaders. There's a dual judgment here. David is being judged for his sin by Absalom. Absalom will be judged for his sin as well, though. He, what he's doing is a judgment, but it's also sin. He will be judged. We cannot fight sin with sin, and when we do, we can expect judgment. Even if we defeat a sinful man with sin, we can expect judgment for that sin. Don't think that the ends will ever justify the means. Nothing that is happening in this election cycle is beyond God's control or foresight. Either candidate can be used by God as a blessing or a curse upon this nation and to other leaders. It is not for us to worry, to threaten, to manipulate. It is for us to do right, to stand in obedience to God's word, to do our part as the Spirit convicts and leads us, and to leave the rest to God's purposes. He is working, even when we can't understand what he's doing. Well, the council of Ahithophel has been defeated, and he's no doubt quite, quite disturbed by that. He's a wise man. He understands things. He gets what's going on here, and he knows that this is bad advice. And, but, but what can he do? I mean, the king and the elders, they heard both advice. They said, we like this advice better. He can't make people smarter. He can't get into their heads and say, no, look, you haven't really thought this through. This is the, this is the, the frustration and the legacy of wise men. Wise men can say as much as they want to fools, but it's not going to help the fools become wiser unless the fools are willing to listen. He knows Hushai's advice is bad. He knows his advice is best, but he has no power to compel men to obey. And indeed, he is being resisted not only by Hushai, but he is being resisted by the very purposes of Almighty God. Verses 15 and 16 as we hasten on. Then said Hushai unto Zadok and to Abiathar the priests, 
Thus and thus did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and thus have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Lodge not this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily pass over, lest the king be swallowed up and all the people that are with him. So having um, given his advice, Hushai now goes to Zadok and Abiathar. And remember the plan that David had put together last week. Hushai was going to go to the court of Absalom. Zadok and Abiathar were going to go back to the temple and serve. And then they were going to be David's eyes and ears. So David said, you go and you hear what Absalom's plan is. You tell Zadok and Abiathar, and Zadok and Abiathar will tell me so that I can be ready. And that's exactly what Hushai does. He says, this was, this was Ahithophel's advice. This was my advice. But my advice to you now, David, is that you get out of there. Because if somehow at some point Absalom changes his mind and Ahithophel's advice is listened to, they're going to come upon you in the middle of the night and kill you. And you are not ready for that. You need to get out of there. So that's the advice that he gives. He says, get, get over the Jordan as fast as you can, lest you be destroyed. Go to the plains of the wilderness. Verses 17 to 22. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed by Enrogel, for they might not be seen to come into the city. And a wench went and told them, and they went and told King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but they went both of them away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim who had a well in his court, whither they went down. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground corn thereon, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman, to the house, they said, Where is Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said unto them, They be gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem, and it came to pass, after they were departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said unto David, Arise and pass quickly over the water, for thus hath Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people that were with him, and they passed over Jordan. By the morning light there lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan." So what happens here is this. Zadok and Abiathar obviously can't take the message to David themselves. So Hushai gets the message to Zadok and Abiathar. Zadok and Abiathar's children, Ahimeaz and Jonathan, they did not remain in the temple. There's little doubt that Absalom knew that Zadok and Abiathar were loyal to David. But of course, he wasn't going to kill them. They were the priests of the Most High God. But he, though he couldn't really do anything about them because they were the priests, their children were another matter. So there's very little doubt that, that Absalom would not allow Ahimeaz and Jonathan, the, the children, into the city. So instead, they were at Enrogel, which would have been a well on the southeast corner just outside of Jerusalem. And they hung out by that well. And um, uh, Absalom probably knew they were there and had sent spies to watch them to make sure that they wouldn't get into the city. So Hushai tells Zadok and Abiathar what's going on. Zadok and Abiathar take what the Bible says is a, a little wench or, or, or a, a little girl, a, a young, young girl, uh, a servant, and they take her and they send her with the message to Jonathan and Ahimeaz. She goes to Jonathan and Ahimeaz at Enrogel and tell them the message and then they flee to tell David. But there was a lad who saw this whole account take place and said, look, a girl went and told this to Jonathan and Ahimeaz and they left. 
There's probably something going on. They probably know something. There's messages being exchanged here. They're spies. And so Absalom, knowing that, that Ahimaaz and Jonathan were probably on David's side, goes searching for them. So they're running and they know that they're being pursued and they get to Bahurim, which was a friendly city to David. We'll find that again in the next chapters. And they hid Jonathan and Ahimaaz in a dry well. And so they put them in this hole, they cover the hole with something, and then they scatter corn over the hole so that it doesn't look like there's even a hole there. So nobody even knows that there's a hole there. The people come, they say, where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? They say, well, we don't know. They, they passed over the brook already. That would be the brook of Kareth. And so they um, go over, they look for them, they don't find them. They return to Jerusalem. The, boy, the men are pulled out of the pit, and they go and they, they tell David, look, Ahithophel has given this counsel. They want to come upon you in the middle of the night and kill you. You need to get out of here. And so they do. They get out. They go to the other side of the Jordan River. And everyone is over there by, um, by the, the morning light. Everyone had gone over the Jordan. The Jordan was a formidable river to cross. So they're pretty safe now on the other side of Jordan. Then we read in verse 23. At this point, Ahithophel's counsel has been entirely defeated. There's no chance anymore that Ahithophel's plan can be enacted. So verse 23 says, And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, put his household in order, and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Ahithophel kills himself now. And, and notice how calculated this is. He realizes his counsel is not followed and that David will likely... David got away. This was their best chance to defeat David and they ignored it. They missed it. He probably understands now David is going to be back. David is going to be restored. He understands that he is a traitor and his plan to see David killed has failed. So he goes home. He calmly puts his house in order. He makes sure everything is where it needs to be. He perhaps makes sure that all of his affairs, his inheritances, everything is ready where it needs to be. And once everything is in order, he hangs himself. We'll come back to this in a moment and dig into why he did this. But let's finish the final few verses of the chapter. Verses 24 to 26. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom passed over Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him, and Absalom made Amasa captain of the host instead of Joab, which Amasa was a man's son whose name was Ithra, an Israelite, that went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister to Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom pitched in the land of Gilead. So now Israel is going to do what Hushai suggested. Absalom is going to lead the army into battle. And the, the general of this battle is a man named Amasa. Uh, David comes to Mahanaim, Absalom passes over the Jordan, getting ready for battle. Amasa is his general, as Joab is still with David. They pitch in the land of Gilead. Uh, now the text is careful to give the relationship here between Amasa, David, Joab, and such. Let's uh, consider it in tree form for understanding. First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that David has two sisters, Zeruiah and Abigail. The father of Abigail, however, is said to be Nahash, not Jesse. 
So it would seem that Abigail was actually David's half-sister, having the same mother, but having different fathers. We don't know who David's mother is, but, um, but this mother um, was likely married perhaps to Nahash first, and then to Jesse afterward, uh, or perhaps the other way around. Um, likely, actually, it means that Jesse died, and she went and she married Nahash. So uh, this would mean that Abigail was his sister, though considerably younger than him, and then Amasa being her son. Jesse, um, yeah, Jesse died. David's mother probably married Nahash. Um, Nahash is actually probably the king of Ammon, whose name is Nahash. This would make sense as we consider some of the political partnerships and such. We'll talk about this in a moment. So, let, let, let me collect the thought here. You, you can see it there on the screen. Jesse and his mother have, of course, David and his sons and have Zeruiah. Zeruiah has three sons. This is David's sister, full sister. Zeruiah has three sons, Joab, Abishai, Azahel. Azahel is dead. Joab and Abishai are still alive. These are David's nephews, and they are also David's military leaders. Most likely, Jesse died, David's father, and his mother then marries Nahash, who is quite possibly Nahash, king of Ammon, has Abigail, who is now David's half-sister, and Abigail has Amasa, who is now David's half-nephew, um, and is Joab and Abishai and Azahel's cousin, um, and so they're all related here. Verses 27 to 29. And it came to pass, when David was come to Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Nahash of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Maker, the son of Amael of Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogalim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, and wheat and barley and flour and parched corn and beans and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of kine, for David and for the people that were with him to eat. And they said, the people is hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So David arrives in Mahanaim and we find two groups of people there to meet him. Shobi is the son of Nahash, who is the king of Ammon. So the king of Ammon is a friend of David. We see that here. Nahash is the king of Ammon and his son, Shobi, is literally meeting David in his exile. Nahash, it would seem, is a title. Like Pharaoh or Caesar, Nahash was likely a title for the leader of the people of Ammon. There was a Nahash in 1 Samuel who fought against Saul and lost terribly. There was a Nahash who had died and David sent ambassadors to Ammon after Nahash had died to honor him. At the time, his son disgraced them by shaving half their beards and cutting off half their clothes and sending them home. And that started a war between David and the people of Ammon. And David conquered the people of Ammon. And it was during that conquering of the people of Ammon that David sinned with Bathsheba. It would seem perhaps that another son of this man, or perhaps the son of the king who had incited David, was named uh, uh, Shobi. And it would be possible as well that David's mother had married the Ammonite king following the death of Jesse, which would explain David's great regard for them in that generation prior to 
David's great dishonor. Wouldn't it make sense that if the Nahash that died was his mother's new husband, that he would send ambassadors to honor him following his death? It would make sense. And then his, the, the, that man's son, who is perhaps uh, not related, maybe, maybe a son that was, came before David's mother married him, uh, dishonored them. But Shobi is perhaps, perhaps uh, David's half-brother. Perhaps not. We don't know. I'm speculating here, but, but we have a Nahash. And Nahash was a title for the kings of Ammon. And Nahash was the father of Abigail, whose mother was the same as David's mother. So I hope you kind of catch all that. You can see that. Maybe you can listen again. I don't even know if I'm saying it clearly. You can look at the, uh, you can look at the text you can look at the time, uh, the, the little family tree I put up previously, and you can make your own decisions on that. On top of Nahash, his son, Shobi, we see Barzillai, Barzillai, a Gileadite, who brought food and supplies and such. And this ends the chapter. It ends our exposition. We're on the cusp of the battle between David and Absalom, and we're going to leave it there. Of course, we come back in our application today to chapter 17, verse 23. We return to the sad case of Ahithophel and seek through it to really bring together a complete understanding of these events, why they came about and how they apply to us. Why did all of this stuff matter so much to Ahithophel? Why did Ahithophel, being such a wise man, betray the king of Israel and want so desperately to kill him himself? And then when it failed, why did Ahithophel so quickly hang himself rather than throw himself at David's mercy or flee the country. Certainly he was a traitor, but, but, but why not throw himself on David's mercy or why not flee? Why hang himself? I'm going to put some things together for you here and I hope it will help us understand this. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, we're obviously not there yet. But in 2 Samuel 23, 34, we read this. Elephelet was the son of Ahazbai, Bai, the son of the Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. So we're actually looking at a list here of David's mighty men. And one of David's mighty men is named Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. Ahithophel's son was one of David's mighty men. Remember that. Ahithophel's son was one of David's mighty men. It's possible that Ahithophel's loyalty to David began when he was still in the wilderness and so devoted to the cause was he that, he, uh, he, that his son Eliam fought valiantly as one of David's great mighty men. There were only 70 or some odd men that are listed in David's mighty men list. And Ahithophel's son is one of them. And we remember back in chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, that Eliam had a daughter. Eliam is one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel is Eliam's father, and Eliam had a daughter. And in 2 Samuel eleven three, we read this. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba is Eliam, the mighty man of David's, 
daughter and the granddaughter of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. When David went into Bathsheba, he didn't just go into a, a woman. He went into the daughter of one of his mighty men. He went into the granddaughter of his trusted counselor. He knew this. He knew who this woman was. He knew that this was his mighty man, Eliam. Eliam was probably on the battlefield with Uriah the Hittite on that day when Uriah was murdered. Ahithophel was probably in the court of the king as David was in his bedroom defiling Ahithophel's granddaughter. He killed her husband He degraded her value. He took her for his own to be one of his many wives through murder and adultery. And all the while, her grandfather is sitting there watching David do it and he has no power to stop it. And all the while, her father is on the battlefield fighting for David and for Israel and he has no power to stop it. They are watching as their daughter and granddaughter are defiled by this man who they love and who they trust and who they devoted their life to. They have been betrayed. They had to watch as because of David's sin, his great-grandson gets sick and dies. Eliam has to watch as his grandson gets sick and dies as a judgment for David's sin. Can you see now why Ahithophel might have been a little bit upset at David? And in this we find a warning which we dare not ignore. None of us has any idea just how far our choices reach. None of us can anticipate just how our actions and decisions affect others. Little can you anticipate how those unkind words that you speak affect your brother or sister or co-worker, son or daughter. Little can you anticipate how deeply that criticism affected your husband or wife, your friend or your pastor. Little can you anticipate how the decision to pursue that sin affects your family and friends. Every week I sit in the jail across from men and women who are finally realizing just how much their choices affect others. Sure, they've never abused their child in the formal sense, but their children have been so deeply hurt by their choices. They form resentments. They become confused. They don't think about their children when they're off getting drunk, getting high. It's not until afterward that they realize that their children have been devastated by their actions. In our churches, we have people who gossip, malign, attack, confuse. Their yay is not their yay. Their nay is not their nay. They're dishonest. They're subvertive. They speak ill of others. They speak ill of the church itself. They speak ill of their pastor. And little do any of us consider the damage that we might be doing. In our families, we pursue sin as if we're the only one at stake. We teach our kids what is right and then show them everything that is wrong. We create a subculture of criticism in the home where we criticize people behind their backs and our children hear that and they they, they find out that that's normal. They're learning things. 
We create a subculture of laziness, of unwillingness to serve others, of only serving when, when it looks like it's to our benefit. The people at church may never hear what you say about them, but your children do. The pastor may never hear what you say about him, but your children hear. They're learning. In so many ways, our sin, our hypocrisy touches the lives of others, and we just don't see it, at least not until it's too late. Why was Ahithophel mentioned? Why did they mention that he hung himself? Why? Why all of this? Well, I think when we put all of the pieces together, we see why. Because we see a strand of unintended consequences from David's sin. David, Eliam, Ahithophel, Bathsheba, Uriah, uh, David and, and Bathsheba's first child that died. Ironically, if Ahithophel had just handled his end properly, he would have come to see his great-grandson take the throne in Israel, Solomon. But he got selfish too. I'm not defending Ahithophel any more than I'm defending David here. Ahithophel made wrong choices. He handled this all wrong. We've talked about vengeance. We've talked about resentment. You can go back and listen to those messages. This, this applies there. His resentment, his unforgiveness, his bitterness boiled over in his life to vengeance, to violence, to evil, and eventually to suicide. We're not defending Ahithophel here, but can you see where he's coming from? Can you see how deeply betrayed he was by David's sin? What a selfish sin David committed, and how many people were hurt by that. Everything that had happened in these two chapters, Absalom's overthrow, that took place as a consequence of David's sin. Ahithophel's conspiracy and then suicide it, it, was all, it was all the consequences of, of, of a sinful deed. David could not have known how deeply his actions, well, he should have known, he could have known how deeply his actions affected Ahithophel, but he didn't care. We cannot, nor should we, take the responsibility off of Ahithophel here. He's a grown man. He's responsible for his actions. But there's no doubt that David's actions inspired Ahithophel's problems. And if David had just done right, if he had just seen Bathsheba and said, I will, I've made a covenant with my eyes, as Job said, that I will not look upon a maid, and he'd have turned away and moved on with his day, Second Samuel would have been a much shorter book. Or it would have been filled with David's successes instead of David's failures. And that simply put is what I leave you with this evening. Your sinful actions may or may not have lasting negative effects on those around you. But let me just say this. Your righteousness will never have a negative effect on anyone. You want to play it safe? You want to make sure that your choices and decisions and sins aren't going to affect anyone? Then don't sin. Choose righteousness. And so we are compelled by God's word simply to do right. Once again to allow our righteous actions and words to bear the fruit of righteousness, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those with whom we come in contact, with whom we influence. This is our privilege, and indeed it must be our resolve this evening. Let's pray.